This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. But let us begin, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 28th of July. My memory serves me correct, by the way. July used to be called Quintilus in the Roman system, but Julius Caesar decided to name it after himself, which then later led to his nephew, Octavian, when he became Caesar Augustus, to claim Sixtus to rename the sixth month of the year. The Romans started their calendar in March after himself. That's how we got July and August. Fortunately, the next emperor in the series, Tiberius, left September alone. But it was on July 28th, in 1586, that Sir Thomas Harriet introduced potatoes to Europe, which he brought to Britain from Colombia. And no, we're unable to nail down the precise date of the invention of fish and chips. Two years later, on the same date, Britain began its defeat of the Spanish Armada, which marked the decline of Spain and the ascent of Britain for world supremacy. And here's one I'd forgotten. On July 28th, in 1914... World War I began, with Austria-Hungary declaring war on Serbia. This marked the beginning of the most catastrophic war in world history, which unfortunately was outdone 21 years later at the end of the first one. On July 28, 1932, President Herbert Hoover ordered the U.S. Army under General Douglas MacArthur to evict by force the bonus marchers from the nation's capital. We talked about this a few weeks back when we spoke with David Talbot about his excellent book, Devil Dog, about General Smedley Butler. In case you missed that review, those marchers were a group of 20,000 World War I vets who were in desperate financial straits and seeking promised cash payments for their veterans' bonus certificates. MacArthur's men set the marchers' camps on fire and the veterans were driven from the nation's capital. On a lighter note, one year later, July 28, 1933, the singing telegram was introduced. The first person to receive it apparently was American singer Rudy Valley on his 32nd birthday. In case the name doesn't ring a bell, Rudy Valley was a very popular singer in the late 20s and early 30s. He was uh, quite influential, helped produce a lot of different uh, uh, musicians later in his career, as I understand. And I had a chance to see Rudy Valley perform in The Boyfriend, back circa around 19, I don't know, 72. No, Mr. Marilyn, that was not from the play The Boyfriend, but thanks for trying. Now, I would note that uh, a few days ago I was out trying to clean up my garage, which is, shall we say, a work in progress. But during this, I uncovered a cache of material produced for this radio program about seven years ago. Sadly, most of it is still entirely relevant. So I'm going to dig into that and pull out some gems here, hopefully, as we uh, proceed with this show and next week's show. Starting with our quotes of the day. So these, I think, are recycled, but, you know, doggone it, one good turn deserves another. And Daniel Bornstein said, Some are born great. Some achieve greatness, and some hire public relations officers. An equip from the same pile, which I cannot resist, <laughs> author Josephine Tay, who said, 
Lack of education is an extraordinary handicap when one is trying to be offensive. I'm glad to note that we put our educations to good use in being offensive on this program from time to time, when it's warranted. And although it didn't come from the pile, I have to put an added uh, quip slash quote slash joke, which was sent to us by way of reminder from listener Gordon. Gordon, as a great admirer of the immortal Dorothy Parker, reminded me that she was once sent a request for an assignment from her editor while she was on her honeymoon, to which she apparently replied by return telegram, Sorry, too effing busy, or vice versa. And as a bonus to that, let's also quote Dorothy Parker when she once, who once said, The cure for boredom is curiosity. There is no cure for curiosity. And our joke of the day from the garage pile comes from comedian Stephen Wright, who said, Before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away, and you have their shoes. And doggone it, let's do another joke of the day. Top 10 indicators that your employer has changed to a cheap HMO. Number 10. Your annual breast exam is done at Hooters. Like number nine, directions to your doctor's office include, take a left when you enter the trailer park. Number two was, with your last HMO, the Prozac didn't come in different colors with little M's on them. Number three, the only expense covered 100% is embalming. And my personal favorite, number five, your primary care physician is wearing the pants you gave to Goodwill last month. All right, we're not afraid in this program to embrace what are pejoratively called conspiracy theories. The reason is we tend to focus on conspiracies that are real. One, I'm proud to say I believe I speculated on many years ago on this program. Uh, I speculated on the possibility that the Dukakis campaign back in 1988 got tanked by people who may have been in the pay of the Republican Party. I always had my suspicions about this because Dukakis had such a tremendous lead at the time of the Democratic Convention, a 20-point lead, and yet he lost rather handily to George Herbert Walker Bush, an inept campaigner if there ever was one. Now, one of the people that was instrumental in the success of George Herbert Walker Bush, despite his lackluster performance and wishy-washiness, was Roger Ailes who headed the news division at Fox for the last 20 years. Roger Ailes is currently in a bit of hot water. He's being accused of sexual harassment and is um, being let go, shall we say. Now, there seems to be uh, a question of whether Ailes is being let go because Rupert Murdoch's sons don't get along with him, but we don't know that much about that. We just sort of hear rumors. But what struck me about Roger Ailes being let go in the wake of allegations of sexual harassment was, well, let me just quote from a piece by John Coblin and Emily Steele from the New York Times. Roger Ailes stepped down on Thursday as chairman and chief executive of Fox News, ending a 20-year reign as head of the cable network he built into a ratings juggernaut and an influential platform for Republican politics. Reading down to the article, it was noted that Ailes' position atop Fox News was thrown into doubt two weeks ago after a former anchor, Gretchen Carlson, filed a sexual harassment lawsuit against him. Ailes denied the accusations, but 21st Century Fox began an internal review and ultimately determined that he could no longer remain in the job. 
In a letter to Murdoch last Thursday, Ailes wrote, Having spent 20 years building this historic business, I will not allow my presence to become a distraction from the work that must be done every day to ensure that Fox News and Fox Business continue to lead our industry. Here's the part that caught my attention. A copy of the letter was provided by Ailes' lawyer, Susan Estridge. Now, back in 1988, when Roger Ailes was prepping Bush 41 for TV appearances, as he had done for Nixon back in 1968, working against him was Susan Estridge. She ran Michael Dukakis's campaign for president. But now, this week, in 2016, it's quietly mentioned that a copy of the letter was provided by Ailes' lawyer, Susan Estridge. What is Susan Estridge doing being the lawyer for Roger Ailes? When did they get chummy? That's a question I would like an answer to. Um, could it be that they were actually well acquainted back in, say, 1988? Just wondering. We will continue to try and run that one down. Something else we're going to also run down is the matter of the Trump-Cruz feud. As has been extensively reported, uh, Ted Cruz, supposedly the savior of the nation from Donald Trump, which um, is a scary concept, went to the GOP convention and urged the delegates there and the nation to vote their conscience next November, which was not exactly a stirring endorsement of Mr. Trump. Trump, for his part, continued to say that he would now, now even accept <laughs> an endorsement from Cruz and continue to, continue to bring up men and, and still left hanging that allegation he made earlier that Ted Cruz's father may have been hanging out with Lee Harvey Oswald. We're also going to try and run that one down because the fact of the matter is, while we don't know anything about what Ted Cruz's dad was up to back in 1962 and 1963, it is a matter of historical record that young Oswald was photographed with two other dark-skinned, Latin-looking men passing out leaflets, at which time he was arrested in New Orleans. News crews showed up and filmed this, which did prompt uh, JFK researcher Jim DiEugenio to once ask the question, um, why don't you call up your local news station and tell them you're going to do some leafleting and see if they'll send out a news crew? They probably won't, of course, but back in 63, they did. And thus, these couple of dark-skinned Latin men were well photographed, hanging out with Oswald, passing out literature. So I think what we're going to have to do is put a call into Southern California and ask perhaps Mr. Eugenio himself what he thinks about the notion that might have been uh, old man Cruz. We are skeptical, very skeptical, because the pictures I saw of him, well, I did look up on the internet some old pictures of Cruz, and uh, I can't say that I see a resemblance, but I'm not a photographic expert. Research will continue. For the record, we do find it highly unlikely, but simply note as an addendum that there were a couple of mysterious figures associated with Oswald, which the Warren Commission and everybody else has to this day failed to identify. Of course, unless it's Ted Cruz's old man, but we'll see. You know, looking out in front of me, I actually have 21 piles of clippings to use to uh, talk about stuff. And being that I'm feeling slightly overwhelmed, I think what I will do right at this juncture is go to the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for opting out 
after a survey from public policy polling revealed that 13% of U.S. potential voters would prefer to have a giant meteor crash into the earth and destroy civilization than see either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump living in the White House. For the record, Radio Parallax would rather see either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump in the White House than have a giant meteor or asteroid destroy civilization. Because there is always the chance, after all, that neither Clinton nor Trump would do so. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for our obsession with dogs, with the news that a British company has unveiled a large TV remote control specifically designed for dogs Pause. Company spokesman Dan Reeves said, We know that people can feel a little guilty about leaving their dog alone. So yes, to assuage that guilt, you now have the opportunity to let Fido pick the channel he wants to watch. And in an, and in an unscientific study conducted by Radio Parallax, we have concluded that most dogs do prefer to watch Fox News. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for America's disgrace of a legal system with the news that the Texas Supreme Court has ruled in favor of a Christian family accused of failing to educate their children because they believe the rapture is imminent. Laura and Michael McIntyre refused to provide the school board with proof they've actually homeschooled their nine children, saying the order violated their constitutional rights. The all-Republican court ruled in their favor. All right, we're going to talk a lot of politics in today's program, and that's almost always a depressing topic. So let's, let's go instead of the world of science, which is often an upper. And um, we would note that there is some good news coming from the Kepler space mission. Well, it's been relabeled the K-2 mission. It was the for, formerly known as the Kepler mission. Interestingly, in spite of the fact that one of its gyros went out, a couple of years ago, making it impossible to line itself with the kind of precision that scientists were hoping for, um, they were able to use the pressure of sunlight to line it up closely enough to continue its work. To quote from the piece by Rachel Feltman in the Washington Post, for its first few years, Kepler used three of its reaction wheels to keep it centered precisely on a single swath of the night sky. It was looking for fluctuations in starlight, dims and flickers, and winks made by planets as they passed in front of the 150,000 stars in Kepler's field of vision. Then, one of these reaction wheels failed. Without it, the spacecraft was unstable and any outside force could knock it totally out of position. But instead of calling it quits, scientists transitioned into a second wave of observation called K2. K2 uses the physical power of the sun to keep Kepler from being unwieldy. The light from the sun acts as a virtual third reaction wheel, physically pushing against this craft's solar panels as the three physical reaction wheels push back. It's not perfect, but it's worked well enough for, K for K2 to discover an additional 104 new planets. And in the process, because it was not focused on the original stars it was aiming for, um, K2 has been looking more at some red dwarf stars. 
And wouldn't you know, one of those dwarfs, a star labeled K2-72, 181 light years away, apparently has four planets somewhat like our own Earth. It's a much dimmer star, and it's believed because of the tidal forces that all of those planets will be tidally locked as our moon is with the Earth. But, uh, but hey, red dwarfs live a long time. This, 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 uh, <laughs> this situation could be going back uh, 8, 9, 10 billion years. Perhaps life has found a way to get started on one of these four rocky worlds. Who knows? Research continues, and we'll continue to follow it. And we have to confess, we don't report on so-called health news as often as we might on this program, even though yours truly is, in fact, a medical doctor, because a lot of what passes for health news is, let's just say, fuzzy. And um, fuzzy might be a good description for this new study that was reported in the, on in the Sacramento Bee uh, last week. Well, it was a reprint from an article in the Washington Post by Christopher Ingraham about a study on alcohol and marijuana and how they affect aggressiveness. Now, in case any of you have doubts in your mind about the effect on aggressiveness and alcohol and marijuana, you'll be pleased to note that these researchers have indeed concluded that alcohol tends to make people more aggressive and shock. I know, I hope you're sitting down when I tell you this. Apparently, marijuana has the opposite effect. The piece in the post, the piece in the post asked, what about a link between marijuana use and aggression? Most pot smokers will tell you that marijuana helps them relax. The popular stereotype of a heavy marijuana user is the guy stoned out of his mind on the couch, eating chips and watching cartoons. But surprisingly, noted the piece, research on the link between marijuana and aggression has been mixed. Marijuana seems to mo make most people relaxed, but also can cause anxiety and paranoia, conditions which can occasionally manifest themselves in violent ways. Well, yeah. If you talk to a pot smoker, they will mention that there are those occasional bouts of paranoia that seem to go along with the drug. But, um, you know, let's face it. You and I do not know anyone who's gone out and punched somebody or busted a pole cue over somebody's head or beat up his wife or crashed his car into a tree at 95 miles an hour while stoned. We're not saying it's theoretically impossible if you had a moment of paranoia, but uh, gee whiz. You know, we, we probably do need to start putting in for some grant money to do some studies when you see the nature of this sort of science. Let's close the segment uh, with an item from, uh, well, a piece that I've been sitting on apparently for 10 years. It's dated July 9th, 2006. It was an article in the B about, uh, well, it was an article written by Anne Aguilar Santucci. She's a member of the Club Español of Rockland, a group that has spent 25 years celebrating the history of its Spanish ancestors. In this little piece, Ms. Aguilar Santucci talked about how Sacramento County's roots reach back to Spain via Hawaii in some cases. Now, it so happens that uh, about this time, Mr. Miller and I interviewed a family friend. He was 102 years old or 103, I forget which, but uh, Frank Perez had actually gone this route from Spain to Hawaii and finally to California. He didn't settle in Sacramento. He was in the Bay Area, but same idea. So it was curious to read in this piece 10 years ago in the B about how 
In the fall of 1906, the first recruiters attempting to bring Spanish farm people to Hawaii showed up in Malaga. They were offered free one-way passage for everyone under 45, a three-year written contract, a free new home on one acre, schooling for those younger than 16, and free medical care for minor injuries and illnesses. In turn, those prospective immigrants had to provide a birth certificate and a marriage or widowhood certificate, as well as letters from the local priest, doctor, and mayor stating the family was in good health, able to travel, and good standing in the community. So, yeah, Frank Perez was part of this. Uh, the article mentions that the first ship of Spanish immigrants to Hawaii was the SS Heliopolis, set sail on March 10, 1907, bearing 2,246 men, women, and children. They went around Cape Horn. Took them 48 days. Now, we do have somewhere um, a recording we made of Frank describing doing exactly this as a boy, and I don't believe we ever aired it. This is a huge error on our part, but we're going to dig through the archives, see if we can't find it in the weeks to come. Uh, go over this same topic and, and use this, this, this editorial piece to augment our discussion. But I think we need to take a break at this point, after which time we will come back and talk about the vice presidency. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Don't go anywhere. 